From beanies to carry bags and from shoes to caps, browse our shop now at tntradio.live. Talk that matters. Germ Warfare and Jeremy Nell on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Germ Warfare at tntradio.live. That's my email address. Thank you to everybody who sends me emails. Uh, I got an email, I think it was this morning. Uh, thank you. I really do appreciate the feedback. Also, I appreciate the hate mail, which comes very rarely these days. So I think I'm doing something wrong. I need to push that envelope a little bit more to to trigger some some listeners. By the way, you are welcome to to watch uh, our live stream now. We have for the last almost month, I think, been uh, video feeding uh, TNT. I think it's on YouTube and Rumble. Check on TNT's website. You'll see all the links there. Jump into the live chat as always. Alex, my name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the Battle of Ideas. Conversations to inform and include. It's meant for everyday people to understand. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Zachary Foster, again, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Thanks so much for having me back on. Yeah, so when you and I last chatted, um, it was an absolutely fascinating conversation. Uh, We were talking about uh, Palestine and more specifically the sort of creation of Hamas. Now, what's interesting is... If you go onto X or onto just about any social media platform, the un, the unadulterated hatred and very clear misunderstanding of what Hamas is, is evident. I'd like to, if it's okay with you, just kind of go back to what Hamas is, who they are, etc. But before we do that, let's just quickly, for those who don't know who you are, let's talk about your background. Yeah, so I am a Jewish American from Detroit, Grew up in Jewish schools and Jewish summer camps and Jewish youth groups, and then got much more interested in uh, Palestine and the Palestinian people, learned Arabic, did graduate studies in, in Middle East history, did my PhD on Palestinian history. And now I write a lot about Palestine. I have a newsletter called Palestine in Your Inbox. And I'm trying to make uh, academic research on Palestine, historical research on pa- Palestine, more accessible to a broader audiences. Mm. It's that newsletter that actually got me in touch with you because I was so fascinated by what I was reading. It was challenging my own my own paradigms. And and this is what I love. I love having a mirror held up at myself and, and questioning what I thought I knew. So on that note, uh, there's a war that's currently going on. And if we were to listen to what people are saying on social media, Hamas is a terrorist organization. It wants to wipe out Israel. They are just evil, horrible people, uh, beheading babies and just killing Israelis left, right and center. This is obviously nonsense. So where do we begin? For me, the story of Hamas begins at the very least in 1973, when Sheikh Ahmed Yassin, himself a refugee who was expelled from his home in 1948, establishes an Islamic charity in Gaza. It's known at the time as Al-Mujama Al-Islami, which you might translate to an Islamic collective. When it's first founded, it's a mosque. It's based in a mosque. Um, it has a charity wing. It uh, has a clinic, a health clinic. It, it, it has a zakat committee. Um, it uh, is operating orphanages. It runs a network of schools, um, social services, helping the Palestinian poor. And that's why it spreads around Gaza and the West Bank. And in in the 1980s, in the early to mid-1980s, it actually attracts the support and the funding of the Israeli government itself um, because uh, the the Israeli military wants to undermine the PLO based in exile abroad, first in in, in Jordan and then in Lebanon and then in Tunisia. 
And in order to undermine the secular revolutionary nationalists based in exile, Israel has the brilliant idea of funding and supporting this peaceful, nonviolent, apolitical Islamic charity known as the Islamic Collective. And then over the course of the 1980s, I would say, as the Israeli military increases its uh, uh, clampdown of Palestinian protesters, arresting thousands of Palestinians indiscriminately, shutting down the universities in Gaza and the West Bank, um, the organization increasingly, um, I would say, becomes, a, a, um, you know, it, it, they they are uh, they are arrested in the early, um, Sheikh Ahmed Yassin is arrested in the early to mid 80s for having collected weapons. And then really, it's really not until 1987 when an Israeli truck driver strikes and kills four Palestinians in Gaza, um, that you have a kind of spontaneous outburst of, of revolt known as the Intifada, the uprising, which uh, over the course of the first year of that uprising from late 87 until 1988, the Israeli military enters the Gaza Strip and kills 142 Palestinians in the course of the first year of the uprising. And in response, the Palestinians in Gaza kill zero Israelis because it is a nonviolent revolt primarily. Um, we're talking about daily strikes, daily protests, burning tires, uh, preventing the Israeli military from entering Gaza. Um, you're, we're talking about sit-ins. We're talking about boycotting Israeli goods. Um, we're talking about establishing committees to defend Palestinian neighborhoods. Um, and so uh, it, it's over the course of that first year that Hamas begins to first embrace violence in its in its August 1988 charter. But it's important to remember, so, so it's my argument um, that if, if you want to understand why Hamas transitions from a Islamic charity organization to a militant resistance group, um, you have to understand the first year of Israel's brutal suppression of that uprising, during which time uh, Israel is killing dozens and dozens of Palestinian children. They're killing a Palestinian every, uh, every other day for an entire year. And lo and behold, it's precisely during that time period that Hamas says, um, this is intolerable, uh, we need to fight back. And that's when they embrace violent military resistance. Uh, one thing I would add, though, is even before that August 1988 charter uh, comes out, which infamously calls for an Islamic state over all of Palestine, um, even before that charter was released, already in March 1988, so we're talking, what's that, five, four or five months before, you have a, a, a Hamas officials, Mahmoud al-Zahar, um, he travels to, to Tel Aviv to meet with then-Israeli Foreign Minister Shimon Peres and says, we're open to peace. And then he travels back to Tel Aviv um, uh, uh, in June 1988 and presents a document to, uh, uh, to then-Defense Minister Yitzhak Rabin and says, look, if Israel is open to uh, uh, withdrawing from the occupied Palestinian territories, which it illegally occupied in 1967, if Israel allows a third party like the UN to enter the territories and administer uh, elections, allow the people of Palestine, the Palestinians, to elect their own representatives without Israeli interference, um, we are open to peace. And those were Hamas peace offers that came uh, 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 two months before the charter was released. Um, so that kind of brings us to really the moment that, that Hamas then says, you know what, we're going to uh, pursue violence. They embrace the charter in 1988. Um, and then, but it's not until 1989 that Hamas uh, carries out its first attack on an Israeli military target, by which point um, Israel had already killed 300 Palestinians in the territory. And Hamas says, we're going to fight back, and they kidnap and kill two Israeli soldiers in 1989. 
Um, but but it's not until 1990, really, um, that you see the first attack on an Israeli civilian, which comes uh, two months after the Israeli military slaughtered 22 unarmed protesters um, in October 1990 uh, on uh, the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound. So what I think is misunderstood about Hamas is that First of all, the, the organization was a charity organization first. And then second of all, it was because of Israel's grotesque violence in the occupied territories that radicalized Hamas first into targeting military targets and then gradually, increasingly uh, targeting Israeli civilians as well. Okay, so what, just, to, just to be clear, what you're saying is that they were initially peaceful and then the longer the occupation persisted, the more aggressive they became. That's exactly correct. And I think it's not especially well understood that from the period from 1988, when Hamas first declared their intent to, to pursue violence on paper, um, until 1994, really, when you start to see these real grotesque acts of violence that Hamas became famous for, right? The bus bombings and uh, the, the bombings of cafes and pizzerias, right? It's not, it, it's actually about six, seven years that elapses during which time Hamas, first of all, is primarily targeting military targets. And as we all know, occupied peoples have a right to use force against brutal military occupations. So it's not even clear that this organization is a, is a terrorist organization until much, much later. In fact, the, they don't even come to be de uh, deemed a terrorist organization, according to the United States, until 1996. So we're talking, you know, we're talking six, seven, eight years, during which time the organization is primarily focused on trying to rid itself, uh, uh, trying to rid the occupied territories of a brutal mil military occupation. So what is the difference between Hamas and the PLO in that case? So the PLO is uh, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, first founded in 1964, and the PLO it embraces violence from the beginning. Um, they, uh, they, uh, the PLO is uh, established with the support of the Arab League, um, and it, it carries out attacks against Israeli uh, civilian and military targets, both in Israel um, as well as Israeli uh, uh, civilian and military targets abroad. So we're talking, you know, from the late 1960s to the 1970s and 80s, uh, we're talking uh, border raids coming from Jordan, coming from Gaza, coming from Lebanon. Um, then eventually the PLO is based in Beirut, and then Israel enters Beirut. They invade Lebanon in 1982 and slaughter thousands of Palestinians, actually quite reminiscent of what we're seeing uh, right now in Gaza. They uh, bomb, carpet bomb Beirut. Um, you know, we're talking thousands. Uh, uh, I think the estimates are more than 5,000 Palestinian and Lebanese are killed in 1982. Um, they with, they enter Lebanon with the goal of, quote-unquote, eradicating the PLO, um, the exact same language they're using today to describe Hamas. Of course, you can't uh, eradicate the PLO because it's an international organization uh, that has supporters around the world. It has supporters in the occupied territories. Um, instead, what happens is they push uh, uh, the PLO out of Beirut. The PLO relocates to, uh, to Tunisia. And by 1988, the PLO has already renounced violence. Right, you have Yasser Arafat now based uh, in, in Tunisia. His support is primarily coming from the the, the Iraqi, uh, uh, excuse me, the Gulf states, uh, especially Iraq. And then when you know uh, he, he, Yasser Arafat makes the tragic mistake of siding uh, with, um, uh, excuse me, siding uh, with Iraq um, in Iraq's invasion of Kuwait, they lose that support.
from many of the other Gulf states, um, that like Qatar um, and, and like Saudi Arabia, so they lose funding from the Gulf states. Um, then after the fall of the Soviet Union, they lose funding from the Soviets. So they're basically isolated, far away from the action. Meanwhile, you have the Intifada taking place during which the Palestinians on the ground in the occupied territories are really carrying out the Palestinian struggle on the ground uh, against the Israeli military, while the PLO, based in exile, has lost a lot of its support, has lost funding, um, and has already renounced violence, and has now uh, declared that Israel you know, has a right to exist, and enters into negotiations with Israel that eventually results in the Oslo Accords of 93. And meanwhile, Hamas is a grassroots organization based in the occupied territories, has broad support, um, you know, uh, especially in the 1990s, as the Oslo process that the PLO is engaged in is clearly not working out as planned, right? Is clearly not leading uh, to uh, an end of the occupation. If anything, the occupation is entrenching itself during the process by which the PLO is engaged in these negotiations, the Oslo Accords uh, with Israel. And so Hamas becomes this more militant resistance group, um, whereas the PLO becomes uh, eventually, you know, the PA is really kind of the reincarnation of the PLO after 93. And the PA comes to be seen as corrupt. It comes to be seen as inept. It comes to be seen uh, uh, as an ally with the Israeli military. And today, if you ask, you saw the poll that came out, was it a, a, a few days ago, the, the, the Palestinian Authority, which is the child, you could say, of the PLO, the Palestinian Authority, led by Mahmoud Abbas, has 11% of the Palestinians in, in, in the occupied territories support him. 90%, 88%, I believe was the number, 88% of Palestinians in the mm -hmm. occupied territories uh, want Abbas to resign. Uh, whereas Hamas, at the same time, in the same poll, the, the Hamas, since October, so they took a poll on uh, September 2023, Hamas had, I believe, something like 11, 12, 13% of people in the West Bank supported Hamas. Now that figure has 3 x now it's more like 44%, I believe, is the figure. So Hamas grew incredibly popular since October 7th in, in the occupied Palestinian territories, I mean, in the West Bank. And then in Gaza, they also became more popular. I think it, it went from 36, 37% support in Gaza to 42, 43% support, something like that. Um, so we're talking Hamas becomes more popular. Um, whenever Israel goes on these killing rampages like it's doing now, of course, resistance increases. Desire for militant resistance increases whenever Israel goes on these violent rampages. Um, and so today, we've never been in an environment where the, where the Palestinian Authority slash the PLO has less support and where Hamas has, has more support. Yeah, this is not what Netanyahu was envisioning, was it? I mean, he was quite surprised when Hamas came in. I think if Israel had the belief that they were going to go into Gaza, carpet bomb the place to oblivion, destroy 60 plus percent of the housing stock, um, make 1.8, 1.9 million Palestinians refugees. We're talking 85 percent of the Palestinians of Gaza now are refugees, internally displaced persons um, living in open air shelters, waiting 12 hours in line for a piece of bread, uh, dehydrating. If Israel thought destroying the entire uh, hospital system, if Israel thought that that was going to make, uh, uh, was going to lead uh, Palestinians, you know, to reject military resistance against Israel, I think they had something else coming. And not only do you have mm -hmm. more militant uh, support for militant resistance in Gaza, but you have more militant uh, support for militant resistance in the West Bank, um, as well as abroad. So I think it had the exact opposite effect as intended. Instead of we weakening Hamas. Israel has once again strengthened Hamas. Now, I, 
sorry, what you're saying is correct. I, when I said Hamas coming in, I meant being voted in in the election. That also, I mean, that's what surprised Netanyahu and of course the international community. I think that this idea that you can eradicate Hamas, as Israel has said mm. over and over and over again since October 7th, is is a fiction. I mean, we're talking yeah. about a, not just a military organization, but we're talking about a network of schools, a network of mosques, a network of orphanages and hospitals and health clinics and zakat committees. We're, we're, they're deeply, deeply embedded into the society of Gaza. They've ruled Gaza for 16 years. They run the transportation ministry. Uh, they run the, the, the power plant, right? They run the sewage system. They operate the country. It would be like Hamas saying, we're going to eradicate the Israeli government. I mean, how is that even mm. possible? You're going to eradicate mm. the Israeli health ministry and you're going to eradicate, you know, the Israeli transportation authority and you're going to eradicate the Israeli public school system. I mean, what does it even mean to say that? It means yeah. carrying <laughs> out a full scale genocide is what it means. Mm, ethnic cleansing. Um, Zachary, don't go anywhere. I'm just quickly going to a break. I'll be back with you shortly. My name is Jerm. This is TNT Radio. You should hear what Ross Cameron is talking about. I see there's a new trend taking place, sweeping uh, the internet of what they're calling sort of technology naked walks, where you go for a walk without your iPhone, without uh, a headset, and just alone with your thoughts. Apparently some people are finding it quite emotionally taxing, but subsequently liberating. Uh, certainly I find if I get into a motor vehicle with a teenager, it's a matter of seconds uh, before there is a request for uh, usually the latest uh, Taylor Swift song or some other form of electronic stimulus. We are generation apparently trained uh, for a very short concentration span and a desperate need for um, digital company. Ross Cameron on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. I didn't ask to be thrown in the streets with nowhere to go. I didn't think I'd survive. But I did ask for help and Covenant House was there for me. One in 10 young adults will experience a form of homelessness this year. For these kids who didn't ask to be put in this unthinkable situation, Covenant House is there. Covenant House helped me break the cycle of homelessness in my family. They gave me the love that I needed. Over 2,000 young people will sleep safely in a Covenant House bed tonight. When youth who are experiencing homelessness have a hot meal, a safe place to sleep, medical care, and love, they can overcome heartbreaking challenges and have a brighter future. They just really genuinely just wanted to help me succeed, and I'm succeeding. I'm a, I'm a speaker, I'm an author. Covenant House really helped me and really helped mold me into the woman I am today. If you or someone you love is asking for help, go to safeplacetosleep.org today. Internet. Internet. A stream online. TNTradio.live. Today's News Talk Radio. TNT. Zachary, I just want to go back to something. You're talking about the occupied territories. This always comes up. So let's just quickly deal with this particular talking point, the occupied territories, because I keep seeing online and I keep getting told in real life also, uh, Israel is not occupying any territories. This is, this is legal. In 1967, the Israeli military uh, took over Gaza, the West Bank, East Jerusalem, Sinai, Golan Heights. It has been imposing military occupation on Gaza, the West Bank, ever since. There is a talking point popular among Israel's apologists that Israel withdrew from Gaza in 2005 when it uh, removed and uprooted the, what was it, 5,000 or 6,000 Israeli settlers 
that were illegally living in Gaza, right? It's, of course, illegal under international law to uh, transfer your civilian population onto territory uh, conquered and occupied through war. That's illegal under the Fourth Geneva Convention of 1948. Um, and, and so what Israel did in 2005 is it took out its settlers. But it didn't, it didn't leave Gaza. It, didn't, it, it maintained it, it, its military occupation over Gaza. And that is, I believe, more or less consensus among international legal experts. And the reasons are very obvious. Um, Israel controls six of the seven land borders. So if you're a Palestinian in Gaza and you want to go fishing, um, it's the Israeli Navy that is controlling the coastline. Now, if, if it's correct to say that Israel withdrew from Gaza, why is the Israeli Navy blockading uh, the Gaza coastline? Well, that's because it, it continues to militarily occupy the Gaza Strip. It, of course, also controls the airspace. The Palestinians in Gaza can't build their own airport. They can't, uh, um, you know, they can't fly drones over Gaza. Israel, of course, flies drones over Gaza. Um, the Israeli military also controls the telecommunication networks, which, as we've all seen over the past two months, um, Israel has decided multiple times to just shut off Gaza completely, literally turn off all the electricity entering the Gaza Strip, leaving Palestinians uh, completely isolated from the outside world, leaving them unable to operate hospitals, unable to operate uh, uh, sewage facilities, unable to, to clean the water and filtrate the water. Um, so, so, so Israel maintains control over the, the electricity. Israel also maintains control over the population registry. Um, in other words, if you want to get an ID, a Palestinian ID, um, that is also controlled by Israel. Okay, so Israel controls the land borders, the sea border, the electricity, the telecommunication networks. Right. So um, as well as the maritime coastline, as well as the airspace. Um, and then also, of course, Israel enters the Gaza Strip whenever it wants. Israeli military personnel entered Gaza. This is after Israel, quote unquote, like ended its occupation, according to this talking point that you just mentioned. Israel entered the Gaza Strip almost every single year between 2005 and 2022, 23. In, in fact, there's in, in some cases barely, uh, uh, you know, a month or two or three go by without the Israeli military um, striking Gaza with a missile, killing whoever Hamas militant they want to kill, entering with ground forces in 2008-9, uh, 2012 they enter again with ground forces, 2014 they enter again with ground forces. In 2018, Israeli snipers are lined up along the fence, just gunning down Palestinian protesters, unarmed Palestinian protesters, and they injure something like 6,000 Palestinians have life-changing wounds as a result of Israeli snipers shooting at Palestinians inside Gaza. And they kill 256 Palestinian protesters uh, uh, from uh, uh, early 2018 until late 2019, just gunning down Palestinian protesters. So to say that Israel is not occupying Gaza is a fiction and it's propaganda. And it's used to make you convinced that the Palestinians had an option, that they had uh, uh, they had an ability to, to, to carry out a normal economy and build a normal state and build a normal society. But all that is fiction. It has remained under total Israeli control uh, uh, really since 1967 all the way to the present day. Knowing that Israel has got the, the might of the Anglo-American um, machine behind it, why do you think Hamas would have gone in on the 7th of October? That's a great question. I think that Hamas themselves were probably surprised at how far into Israel they were able to go and how many Israelis they were able to kill. Um, uh, I don't think they were aware of the music festival. That seems to be consensus among analysts that 
um, I respect. Um, they were not aware there was a music festival. In fact, we, we know that the lo exact location of the music festival wasn't even announced until less than a week before, uh, uh, you know, before October 7th. And then it changed just a few days before they changed it again. Um, so I think they were quite surprised by the music festival. Um, in fact, if you look at the location of the music festival, it seems quite clear they were actually going to target the Israeli military HQ. The, the Israeli military headquarters, I think it's generally underappreciated just to how, how, how much of an attack on the Israeli military this was. They, they basically blew up and took over the Eretz military crossing. This is what amounts to an international border crossing. It houses dozens, if not hundreds, of Israeli soldiers. Um, you know, we're talking about a massive military facility. This was taken over and destroyed by Hamas. And they also were going after, um, so in addition to killing civilians, which they killed many of, they also killed many, many soldiers. And it's very clear they were also trying to target Israeli military targets. They also know the value of an Israeli soldier is much, much higher on the, in, 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 the, in the game of the prisoner exchange um, than uh, an Israeli soldier is. Um, so, um, yeah, so, so um, I, I think they didn't quite expect to be able to breach the Israeli security barrier to the extent that they did. So um, it's not obvious to me they expected quite the retaliation that they had in store for them. Um, look, the other thing is you have to remember the Palestinian leadership in Gaza has been under has been under permanent blockade and siege for 16 years. I mean, mm. six. You know, we're talking 80 percent of the population of Gaza depended on food handouts. We're talking 75% youth unemployment rate. I mean, this is a country, 50% of households have to forego healthcare expenses and forego payment on their utilities bills just to put enough food on the table. That is the level of despair right now in Gaza. Um, and so, look, I think, number one, they didn't expect the response that they got because they didn't expect to be able to achieve the, vict uh, the, the atrocity that they achieved. Um, and then I also... <laughs> Victor, I mean, I, I, th I certainly think that if you want to consider, look, um, killing innocent civilians is despicable. And yeah. the, some of the video evidence that came out is, is absolutely disgusting. Dropping a bomb into, a, a, you know, um, a, a shelter, a, a bomb shelter where little kids are, 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 you know, hiding. I mean, come on. This is absolutely horrific. The violence committed was disgusting. Um, the, now al allegations of rape. Uh, I mean, just absolutely awful things. Um, that doesn't, of course, justify uh, uh, what Israel has done in response. Um, and I would say, generally speaking, um, I think the, the other thing to consider is that Hamas fundamentally changed the conversation. They understood that basically the Palestinian people have been forgotten. They were forgotten in the Abraham Accords uh, uh, when the United Arab Emirates uh, signed a normalization deal with Israel, as did Qatar, as did Morocco, as did Sudan. Um, and then... You had Saudi Arabia, the country that in 2002 uh, put out the Arab Peace Initiative, uh, claiming that they would only normalize with Israel if, if Israel withdrew from the occupied territories, came up with just a, a solution to the refugee issue, and granted the Palestinians a capital in East Jerusalem. Those were the demands for normalization in 2002. Fast forward 21 years, the Saudis are about to sign a normalization deal with Israel without having made any concessions whatsoever to the Palestinians. They have been forgotten, forgotten by the Arab world, forgotten by Saudi Arabia, forgotten by the Muslim world, forgotten by Europe and the United States, forgotten by basically everybody. And so I don't think it's a surprise that after 16 years of siege and blockade, after 56 years of military occupation, after the entire world has abandoned them and forgotten them, that they would then want to uh, flip the, uh, you know, change the, the conversation and put the Palestinian issue back front and center on the on the on the on the, on the table.
Excuse my my cynicism, but in a way, do you think an attack like this by Hamas secretly would have been welcomed by Netanyahu? In, in, because if we look at the response now, it's it seems to be exactly what what he wants. There's no question that Bibi Netanyahu was facing the most severe crisis in his, in his political career. And I do not say that lightly because he has had many, many crises over the years. He was facing the most severe challenge to his leadership in the last 14 years since he came to power for a second time in 2009. I mean, recall that before uh, October 7th, Israeli protesters had gathered around the country in the tens, if not hundreds of thousands every Saturday night. Uh, calling for uh, an end uh, to these quote-unquote judicial reforms, ultimately calling on Bibi Netanyahu to resign. So we, we were talking for 40, 30, 40, 50 weeks, Israeli protesters descending to the streets, calling on Bibi to resign. You know, we're talking even Bibi's supporters abroad in the United States uh, calling uh, uh, on Bibi to put an end to the judicial reforms. Even his most urgent supporters, you know, the Alan Dershowitzes of the world, basically saying this is a mistake and this is a disaster. Okay, that was the kind. So, so he was losing his support uh, from within, and he knew that if Bibi, Bibi knew and still knows that if he is no longer in power, he is going to face. A, a, a chart his court cases he has three court cases currently um in court you know a, a corruption a breach of public trust and bribery as the cases 1000 3000 and 4000 something like that and he is now worried that if he loses power uh he will have to face prosecution uh, it's quite obvious he is going to get uh, convicted of those crimes the evidence is very clear um, you know, he will face prosecution and he will face a, a, a probably a jail time if he is uh, convicted of those crimes. And so he knows that in order for him uh, to stay in power, he needs this Gaza war to be a forever war. He needs to stay in Gaza forever uh, because if he if he as soon as the war is over, the Israeli public, 80 percent of whom uh, uh, hold Bibi Netanyahu accountable for what happened on October 7th, the Bibi knows that the Israeli public will vote him out of office. He will no longer be in charge. He will no longer be prime minister. And in such a world, he will almost certainly face prosecution and probably wind up in jail. And so for him to basically, I, I wouldn't necessarily say he wanted to see, um, you know, the Israeli military have to reoccupy Gaza. I think he was probably happy to just, you know, keep Gazans locked away in an open air prison, throw away the key and not have to worry about it. Uh, I, um, I, I don't necessarily think he wanted to have to reoccupy Gaza, but it's certainly fits well with his political uh, ambition and his goal of remaining in power forever. Um, that is to say, if he is currently in Gaza and has Israeli military forces reoccupying large parts of the Gaza Strip, the war is never over. The war, it's, an, it's a forever war. Uh, Israel mm. will claim that we have to stay in Gaza to prevent Hamas from coming back. And so it will be this low-scale, low-level kind of battle of attrition uh, where you have Hamas militants popping out of houses, jumping up from tunnels, killing one, two, three Israeli soldiers every day forever. And that's going to be, I think, the status quo. As far as I can tell, that is what Israel has in store for a large part, um, if not the entire Gaza Strip. But Zachary, Hamas wants to wipe Israel off the map. Uh, Netanyahu is just defending. Uh, Israel is just defending itself. Well, uh, you could say Hamas wants to wipe Israel off the map. You could also say uh, Israel wants to wipe uh, Gaza's, uh, Gaza off the map. Uh, it was in uh, a few weeks ago that uh, Bibi Netanyahu said not once, but he said twice 
Um, the enemy is Amalek. You are going into Gaza to fight Amalek. Amalek was the biblical peoples that the Israelites faced, um, that God commanded the, the, the biblical Israelites, go and wipe out every man, woman, child, and ox of the Amalek people. And that is what Bibi Netanyahu told his soldiers not once but twice to do in Gaza. That is carry out a full-scale genocide of every last woman, uh, uh, man, and child in Gaza. Now, you can say that Hamas has made similar statements. They've said that we will uh, carry out in October 7th again and again and again. But let's say they carry out 20 more October 7ths, okay? Let's just let's just run with that. That's 20,000 Israelis killed out of, we're talking, what, 9, 10 million Israelis. Um, Israel has already killed 20,000 Palestinians out of 2 million Palestinians. So in order for Gazans to be able to carry out, as they promised, on October 7th, again and again and again, they would need to carry out something like we said, so they would need to carry out 20 times 5, 100 more October 7ths to, 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 to reach the level of violence that Israel has reached in Gaza. Um, so yeah, what Hamas has said is awful. Um, you think I'm a Hamas supporter? No. You think I think what Hamas mm -hmm. did on October 7th was justified? No. But, but, but to pretend that Hamas is the party that, that is primarily responsible for the violence uh, uh, since, and to pretend mm -hmm. that you know, Israel has noble intentions towards Gazans is a total myth. We have reporting from 972 already. Already, this is more than a week ago. Where, and, and New York Times has val verified this reporting. This is not up for debate. The Israeli military has changed its calculus on what is willing to target in this war. It is willing to target residential buildings. It is willing to target civilian areas. It is willing to target hospitals and schools. That is coming from official military uh, leaders in Israel, in the Israeli military, who are in charge of the policies towards Gaza. We know it. The goal is to kill civilians. It's no longer mm -hmm. up for debate. That is the goal of the Israeli military. Not only do they have that as the intention, but they're able to and willing to carry out of those attacks to a level of ferociousness we've never seen before in the entire 140-year history of the Israel-Palestine question. Mm. Something I constantly find myself having to having to defend is this isn't about Jews versus Muslims. Uh, this is about Zionism, isn't it? I think that the Zionist movement and the Zionist leadership from the late 19th century all the way to the present day had to answer a simple question, which is how do you first create a Jewish state in a land that is vast majority non-Jewish? And then how do you maintain a Jewish state in a land that is majority non-Jewish? And then how do you ensure the prosperity of Jews in the Jewish state in a land that is majority non-Jewish? And, 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 and so Zionist leaders answered that question in different ways. Some thought that the Palestinians would voluntarily leave, um, that they could incentivize them to leave. Um, but I think the more sober position was, no, the Palestinians have deep roots in the country, they have a strong national identity, and they're not going anywhere. And if you want them to leave, you're going to have to expel them, which is exactly what most Zionist leaders stated explicitly already by the 1940s. And then after the establishment, and, and then exactly what the, the Zionists predicted happen, would happen, happened. The Israeli leader, the Zionist leadership in 48, um, adopted a plan, Plan Dalid, which was a blueprint for expelling Palestinians from their homes and pushing them to outside the borders of the future state, uh, Jewish state of Israel. And they expelled 750,000 Palestinians and shot at anyone trying to return. And then the question was different. After they established a Jewish state, the question became, how do you maintain a Jewish state uh, in, in a land that is majority non-Jewish? Well, if these refugees want to come home, you have to shoot at them. 
because you have thousands of Palestinian refugees streaming across the border in 1948, 1949, and 1950, and 1951. And what does the Israeli military do? They shoot and kill anyone crossing the border. And in just a year and a half after the war ended, they kill another thousand plus Palestinians. And, and then they go into Gaza in 1956 and kill another, massacre hundreds more Palestinians. Again, because in order to maintain a Jewish state and maintain domination uh, in that state, um, they can't let Palestinians return to it. They can't let Palestinians come back to it. So they have to kill Palestinians. And then after 67, how do you maintain Jewish domination in the occupied territories? Well, you implement an apartheid regime where Jews living in the occupied territories are Israeli citizens, have freedom to travel in Israel, have an Israeli passport, uh, uh, get all the health benefits and all the social security benefits uh, uh, associated with Israeli citizenship, whereas, uh, where, and are subject to the Israeli civilian court system, whereas the Palestinians living across the street from them in some cases, in places like Hebron, you know, in places like Beit El, near Ramallah, you have Palestinians and, 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 and Israelis living side by side. In some cases, literally the buildings are touching each other. They are neighbors. And the Palestinians, and we, as we said, the Israelis have full Israeli citizenship. The Palestinians uh, have no rights. They cannot vote for the government that controls their lives. They do not have freedom of movement. Uh, when they're arrested, uh, uh, their, their uh, uh, conviction rate the, uh, is 99.7%. Um, sure. it, it's an apartheid system. And that's how you maintain a Jewish state, is you dominate, you control, you dispossess, you ethnically cleanse. You demolish their homes. You confiscate their land because you want to ensure Jewish domination and Jewish control and Jewish prosperity. And the way you do that is by subjugating Palestinians. Is it correct or incorrect to use the term uh, Palestinian and Israeli interchangeably with uh, Muslim and Jew? Could you just say that one more time? Um, the when you speak about Palestinians and Israelis, I often find that these terms get used interchangeably with, with Jew and Muslim. Is that correct or incorrect? That's a great question. No, that is incorrect. So <clears throat> Israel is what we're talking, 10 million people, um, maybe less than that, actually, probably more like 8 million people, um, 1.2 million Palestinian Arabs, most of whom are Muslim, uh, a small percentage of whom are Christian. Um, and then in Israel, the in, in Israel proper, we're talking Israeli citizens about a million, let's call it Israeli citizens who are Muslims, Palestinians, about, let's say, 100, 200,000 uh, Israeli citizens who are Christian Palestinians, and then the rest are Jewish. Um, and when we're talking about Israeli settlements, um, the vast majority of the uh, the Israelis in the settlements are Jewish. And in fact, there's actually, I would say, a two-tiered apartheid system within the Israeli-occupied uh, territory of the West Bank. You have the, the, the bigger apartheid system, which is that you have Palestinians and Israelis. So that's kind of like Palestinian-Israeli apartheid. And then within the Jewish, within the settlement, there's another system of apartheid where the Israeli Muslim and Christian Palestinian citizens of Israel are denied right to live in the Jewish Israeli settlements in the occupied West Bank. So there's a, almost a two-tier system of apartheid within uh, the Israeli uh, uh, settlement enterprise in the West Bank. There are a small number of settlements uh, in East Jerusalem. Think of like Piskat Ze'ev, think of like um, Ramot. You know, there are a small number of, of, of settlements built basically entirely in East Jerusalem. Uh, where you have basically Palestinian uh, Palestinians, uh, uh, you know, East Jerusalemites uh, who live in uh, who live in those settlements, but we're talking, a, a, you know, a very small number, and they of course face discrimination in trying to move into those settlements. Um, and in fact, they are originally from East Jerusalem, so like, they should have a right to live there anyway. So I'm not even sure it's even fair to call them settlers. 
Um, but no, that there, you know, we're Muslims. Uh, 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 you know, can, should not be confused with Palestinians who are both Muslim and Christian. Israelis should not be confused with Jews. You know, Israelis can be Palestinians. They can be uh, Muslims and Christians. They can also be Jewish. So those are all different terms. Zachary Foster, don't go anywhere. Be back with you shortly. My name is Jim. This is TNT Radio. Give me a minute with TNT Radio's Steve Malzberg. Uh, the latest leftist attacks against Donald Trump claim he's going to be a dictator in a second Trump administration. And Chris Wallace on CNN playing along uh, put the question to Raihan Salam of National Review. So Raihan, is Donald Trump a dictator in waiting or is he just playing with? Well, look, what he was saying in that moment is something very similar to what Barack Obama said back in 2014. At his first cabinet meeting, he said, I've got a pen and I've got a phone. And what he meant by that is that if Congress does not do what I want them to do, I can sign executive actions and I can use my phone to rally outside groups to create pressure on Congress to get things done. And this is what he was just referring to. I'm going to be working with Congress where I can to accomplish this. But I'm also going to act on my own uh, if uh, Congress is deadlocked. I've got a pen to take executive actions where Congress won't. And I've got a telephone to rally folks around the country uh, on this mission. Executive orders, rallying people via the, the phone, sounds a little dictatorial to me. Uh, context and perspective. They are fake news killers. Thanks for giving me a minute. I'm Steve Ballsberg. Catch my show Monday through Friday, 9 p.m. Eastern, right here on TNT Radio Vision. Internet crimes against children in New Mexico are real. And when it comes to protecting your children, the New Mexico AG's office and the ICAC unit are on the front lines. I'm New Mexico Attorney General Hector Balderas. There's nowhere to hide for online predators in New Mexico. We are working tirelessly using state-of-the-art technology and resources to seek out and find them wherever they are. Please talk to your children about the dangers that exist online, social media, games, and messenger apps. It's always important to know who you're talking to. Help fight online predators in New Mexico by submitting a tip today. TNT. You're with Jeremy now on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Zachary, I got an email uh, in which the the recipient labeled me anti-Semitic. And what's interesting to me is that, correct me if I'm wrong, but in 2019, there was something called the Jerusalem De Declaration, which I believe was a, a collective agreement amongst experts, uh, scholars, academics, all sorts of professionals saying that being critical of the Israeli government is actually okay. It's not anti-Semitic. Is that right? That's exactly right. I mean, let me ask you this. Is it Islamophobic to criticize Egypt or Indonesia? Is it anti-Christian to criticize the actions taken by American President Joe Biden? <clears throat> Is it anti-Buddhist uh, to criticize, you know, uh, Buddhist country uh, leaders? You know, I mean... It, it, it is obviously not anti-Semitic uh, to criticize the actions taken by the uh, state of Israel and the current Israeli government. Anti-Semitism is a, um, a, a kind of a deep-seated hatred towards uh, a Jews um, that yeah. comes in many forms. Um, but it certainly does not come in the form of criticizing uh, 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 political uh, uh, leaders, and especially those carrying out genocidal wars. Um, I think right now what we're seeing is an attempt by Israel supporters uh, to conflate 
criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism for the very uh, for, for very obvious reasons. If uh, people are afraid of being accused with the label of anti-Semitism, then they are much less likely to speak out against the, the actions carried out by the Israeli government. And we know this is the case. I have many, many friends, um, non-Jews especially, uh, who are worried that if they speak out, if they condemn Israel's atrocities in Gaza, that they will be accused of being anti-Semitic, which is an awful thing to be accused of because it's a horrible, uh, um, you know, it's, it's, it's just an absolutely horrible thing. Um, just as Islamophobia is a horrible thing and just as racism is a, ho a horrible thing and just as transphobia is, is a terrible thing, so is anti-Semitism. Um, but it's it, it's a campaign that you could say dates many uh, decades uh, already and was in the early 2000s, the IHRA, the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, um, uh, basically uh, began with a process of trying to redefine anti-Semitism, right? They this is this isn't like one or two or three, you know, uh, Jewish uh, pro-Israel pro propagandists throwing out these accusations. This is a decades-long campaign that has funding and support from the state of Israel and its supporters to literally redefine the word anti-Semitism. And if you look at that mm -hmm. definition, the IHRA definition, it's literally a list of things you're not allowed to say about yeah. Israel. Right. It's like if you call Israel an apartheid state, you're anti-Semitic. Yeah. Well, it's like the, your human rights watch is anti-Semitic. Amnesty International is anti-Semitic. B'Tselem, Yesh Din, al Haq, all these human rights organizations are anti-Semitic. These are the organizations fighting hate. These are the organizations fighting human rights violations. You know, these mm. are the, the organizations that, that, that are basically fighting anti-Semitism, you know, and fighting baseless hatred of the people. They are now anti-Semitic. So it's 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 totally insane what's happening. Um, Zachary, why then? I mean, we see this coming up all the time in in discourse. But why then do neighboring Arab countries not want to take in Palestinians? Well, uh, first of all, uh, I'm not really sure which neighboring Arab countries we're talking about aside from Egypt. So I mean, let's talk about Egypt for for, for a minute. So Egypt mm. obviously borders the Gaza Strip. Um, you know, uh, the Rafah border crossing um, is between Gaza and, and, and Egypt. And by the way, uh, it, 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 there, there's nothing new about Egyptian complicity in Israeli war crimes. Uh, since 2007, that border, that Egyptian border with Gaza has been closed by Egypt um, for most of the past 16 years. It was only a brief period during uh, the reign of uh, Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood President Mohamed Morsi was it in 2011, 12-ish, um, that that border was semi-open. But basically, the Israeli, uh, the Egyptian military has colluded and collaborated with Israel to keep that border closed. And, and the reason is very clear, because Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, uh, Egyptian uh, dictator uh, par excellence, um, he, uh, ha his enemies uh, are the Muslim Brotherhood, right? Recall that he overthrew uh, uh, Mohamed Morsi in what many uh, analysts call a coup, um, in 2013, and it was, um, you know, it, so, so, each, so, so he is, and, and since that coup, since he overthrew um, and installed himself as president of Egypt, um, he then proceeded to go into Rabah Adawiyah and Nasser City um, and massacre a thousand Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood members on a single day. This was the worst massacre in Egyptian history. You know, Egypt, and guess who, guess who is allied with the Muslim Brotherhood? Hamas. So, the Egyptian president has no interest in supporting Hamas, has no desire 
uh, 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 of allowing, uh, you know, basically Palestinian militants to enter Egypt and establish a military base in North Sinai, which is probably what would happen if he opened the border. Um, and 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 so, and he said that, by the way, very directly. I'm not even speculating now. This is these are according to his own official public statements. He has said, "I do not want Palestinian militant base in North Sinai." And he's who would want that? I mean, who would want a, a militant group of a, a, you know a, a non-state actor um, to be based on its territory? No one wants that. Um, but I think more importantly, he knows that if he allows uh, Palestinians to enter Gaza, which he he should open the border. I mean, I think you know it's 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 inhumane to for, uh, to not allow people who are trying to leave and want to escape the violence to leave. Um, but he knows that if he does open the border, he will be perceived as being complicit in the ethnic cleansing of the Palestinian people. Because as soon as that border is open, guess what's going to happen? The Israeli military is going to push through using force and physical violence. It will expel every last Palestinian from Gaza. That is what will happen. We know that. That has been the official position of the Israeli military. Um, there was a report that was released weeks ago, already, um, I think, uh, in late October. Um, there was a report that was published by a, um, a, a an organization associated with the Israeli military declaring that the Israeli army should use, should exploit the moment, take it, seize the opportunity to expel Palestinians out of Gaza into Egypt. And if the borders open, that's exactly what they're going to do. And and then uh, uh, Egyptian President Abdel Fattah Hassisi knows that the Palestine that the Egyptian street will hold him responsible will hold him responsible for that ethnic cleansing operation that would happen if he were to open that border. And so they and, and then he's going to face protests in Egypt. And it's the one thing that the Egyptian public will descend to the streets to protest for because there's they're allowed to, right? You can't protest against uh, uh, Sisi, but you can protest uh, against, uh, uh, you know, basically the Israeli uh, ethnic cleansing operation that would, uh, uh, that would ensue if the border were open. So I would say that's the main reason uh, why Egypt I is not opening the border. And then beyond Egypt, I'm not entirely sure what, what other uh, Arab countries people are talking about. How would Palestinians in Gaza get to Jordan? How would they get to Lebanon? I mean, they, they, they can't, not, certainly not without Israeli uh, military uh, uh, permission, which they obviously do not have. So it's not really clear what other countries people are talking about aside from Egypt. Is it a stalemate? Um, I, I wouldn't use the word stalemate. I, I, I would use the word uh, occupation. It's an occupation now. Uh, Israel is now... Um, has returned. Its forces are, you know, they're planting flags and Israeli flags in Gaza. Um, mm, I saw that. Yeah, they're intending oh, on why staying. Why though? Right. Because okay. they're they're planning on staying. They're planning on re certainly the north. They're planning on reoccupying the north forever. I don't think Israel has any intention of ever leaving. Certainly not in the near future. They may declare a ceasefire at some point mm. through uh, a U.S. pressure or EU pressure or Arab pressure or. Uh, um, uh, Arab League pressure, but or China pressure, or or Russia pressure, but they're certainly not going to leave the Gaza Strip. Again, that would mean that the war would end, and that Bibi would uh, be removed from power by the Israeli voting public, and that he would wind up in prison for the three cases of corruption, bribery, and breach of public trust that he is now facing in the Israeli court system, and that is never going to happen, and it's certainly not if Bibi has any say in the matter. So Northern Gaza will be, in my view. Uh, will be permanently reoccupied by the Israeli military. And only when uh, um, there's a belief that um, those uh, criminal charges that Bibi is facing are no longer uh, a threat to his uh, political survival, 
um, will will Israel ever leave Gaza? Um, certainly, if BB has any uh, a say in the matter. Tom is uh, running against us now, but um, geopolitically, internationally, what repercussions do you think this has? Uh, this has dramatic geopolitical uh, implications. Um, you know, the, uh, on the eve of October 7th, Saudis were about to normalize uh, relations with Israel. That's dead. Uh, the Arab peace, uh, excuse me, the Abraham Accords of was it 20 uh, of what, what two years ago, um, those are practically dead. Um, I, I think that uh, you, you also now have this basically forever war in Gaza, um, which, which the United States has been sucked into, which is now causing a, a, a rift within the U.S. Uh, a Democratic Party. Right, you have uh, the, the the vast majority of of Americans call for, have been calling for a ceasefire for, de for for weeks now, and so Biden is facing pressure uh, both from the American public and from his own political party. Um, so uh, you know the United States has now been dragged into this, and and the war could continue to spiral out of control. Right, we still have the Houthis blocking the Straits of Tehran, so Israel has lost access to its 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 shipping route uh, uh, to Eilat and its southern border. You have Lebanon and Hezbollah still uh, actively engaged in military conflict. Um, attacking Israel from the north. You have the West Bank blowing up. More than 300 Palestinians have been slaughtered in the West Bank in the past two months. Um, and you have that militant resistance as fierce as it has ever been. Um, Gaza is still uh, obviously a, a, a fierce place of fighting and resistance. Um, so you have a, a Jordan has come out really strongly for the first time in recent memory. I mean, I can't recall ever the Jordanian government ever criticizing Israel the way it has uh, in the past few few weeks. So you have a complete regional reconfiguration in which the United States and Israel are now under a tremendous amount of pressure, military pressure, diplomatic pressure, and political pressure. Um, and so this really does change, I think, the geopolitical status uh, of Israel in the region, of the Palestinian cause in the region, of the U.S. role in the Middle East, of uh, of the the role that Iran now plays, uh, configuring and and supporting and funding all of these uh, actors in, the, in 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 Yemen, in Lebanon, in Gaza, um, a real dramatic geopolitical shift that will have that that will I think change the political uh, and diplomatic and economic map uh, of the Middle East for for decades to come. Mm. And really quickly, uh, just a one yes, no, or maybe answer: Is Israel? losing the propaganda war absolutely yes <laughs> um how can i follow your work so you can uh, subscribe to my newsletter called palestine in your inbox at palestinenexus.com uh, you can follow me on x at underscore zach foster um and i would really appreciate a follow uh on x and a, a subscription to the newsletter Zachary Foster, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Thanks so much for having me. Just quickly before you go, Zachary, what do you make of um, of, of Elon and X? Very, very quickly. Uh -huh. Look, Elon is great at, at, at ro building rockets and, and electric vehicles. <laughs> <laughs> That's a different skill set than operating a, a, a media company. I mean, what, 75 he's lost 75% of the advertisers who are now boycotting him? I mean... The the platform it, it, the feature development has also been odd. Why the blue? Why did you take the make the blue check a paid feature rather than a status a, a, a status of prestige? X everyone knew <laughs> brand <laughs> equity of Twitter is like you couldn't rebuild you couldn't recreate a brand as powerful as global yeah. as Twitter and he and he threw it in the garbage. So I, I just anyway. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> All right, thanks Zachary. Uh I'll Anytime. I'll chat you again soon. Uh thank you Joel and uh and Alex for for keeping the show going. I must 
remind you if you're watching, uh, you, you, the reason why you're watching is because of Joel and the reason why you are hearing is because of Alex. Are two great guys behind behind the scenes making me sound somewhat professional. Well, they're making me sound worse than worse than Zachary, and that's on purpose. It's to raise the the status of my guests. <laughs> Do send me an email, Jim Warfare at uh, tntradio.live. Let me know what you thought of the show, feedback, whatever you want. It's all good. I'll catch you tomorrow. My name is Jim. This is uh, Jim Warfare, the Battle of Ideas.